0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Jeremiah. This is now our fourth week in the book of Jeremiah, and so we arrive at chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4. If you're a regular around here, this is probably no surprise. If you're visiting, then uh, we welcome you to Austin Bible Church. Uh, we are not, You will find very quickly, in fact, at this very moment, you may find that we are not uh, the most liturgical of churches you'll ever encounter, and we don't observe in many respects many of the uh, uh, sermonic-type approaches such as Easter, Christmas, things of that nature. We teach verse by verse. We teach chapter by chapter. We teach through the book, and uh, our Jeremiah series has brought us to chapter 4. And so here we are. It may be the worst Easter message you've ever heard, or I trust the Holy Spirit will uh, actually bless it in many ways, uh, even in a resurrection connection. Um, I, I say this often, uh, but my legendary status was, uh, was, was built in 2002 when, in our, through the Bible year, we came to the Whore of Babylon, Revelation chapter 17, on Christmas Sunday in 2002. And so that became my Christmas message And like I say, it kind of fixed uh, the reputation ever since in terms of that. So uh, happy Easter, everybody. The Lord is risen, and we are rejoicing in that. But we do every Sunday. The fact that we assemble on Sunday is testimony to a a risen Savior. So Jeremiah chapter 4. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to bless our time in his word today and to ask for his faithfulness to minister his truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning. We thank you that you are the God of truth. We are children of truth. Your spirit is the spirit of truth who dwells within each one of us. He searches all things, Father, even the deep things of God. And we need that today. We need that every day, Father. I thank you that the word of God is not a human endeavor dependent upon how smart we are to figure these things out. But uh, the word of God is entirely dependent upon how faithful you are to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Father, uh, Jeremiah chapter 4 takes us into some very deep realms, and I ask in particular, more than ever, in this message, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, give us the ears to hear, prepare our hearts to receive your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I warned you uh, last week that when we get into Jeremiah chapter 4, we get into some very deep realms. We have a prophetic shift in Jeremiah chapter 4 that takes us prior to the creation of Adam and Eve, that takes us back to the angelic stewardship and their dominion and their failure uh, upon the earth originally, prior to Adam's uh, earth and prior to planet earth being restored to habitable conditions for the human race. And we'll get to that because uh, it's coming up later in uh, the context of this chapter, it's verses 23 and following. But we'll start with verse 1, if you will return, O Israel declares the Lord, then you should return to me. And if you would put away your detested things from my presence and will not waver, and you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. Here's our first two verses. I'm going to kind of stop there. We'll handle the, the chapter in chunks. It's a fairly long chapter. We've got 31 verses to cover between now and the end of our time. And as always, in this format, I'm going to tell you, man, let's come back and do this again. Let's do Jeremiah someday when we can stop and take more than just one week per chapter because there is some meat to be found to sink our teeth into in uh, so many of these things. But I love the bluntness of verse 1. And you recall from last week that Israel is treating Uh, the Lord like a faithless wife, that she has been a harlot. She has been faithless to him. She's broken her vows time and time and time again. And what husband in his right mind would ever take a wife back that's cheated on him that many times? There's no human husband who would, except for Hosea, in uh, in the plan of God as a prophet of the Old Testament. But that's exactly what Israel expects God to do, to take her back in spite of her harlotries. And he promises to do so. And so in this uh, sense then, he says, If you will return, then you should return to me. And this becomes a significant set of priorities then, as we begin. A spiritual return must precede any physical return to the land. In other words, if you return, you must return to me. That is, a right relationship with Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. You must return to me. You can't just have a political deliverance. You can't just have a military deliverance. You just cannot have an economic deliverance. Some people want to have all of the the great things of a temporal life without the spiritual life of dedication to Jesus Christ. And it doesn't work that way. All right? If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to me. And in the process of returning to me, you've got a whole lot of idols you've got to be getting rid of. You've got to get rid of all that idolatry. You can't sit on the fence. You can't come to me and still have these false gods, these false lovers. It would be like the, the husband saying, I'll take you back, but you're done with all those other lovers that you've been accumulating to yourself in, uh, in those ways. And so this requires then a complete abandonment of all Idolatry. There's a reason why Commandment 1 is so intricately connected to Commandment 2. Why are the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments so inseparable that way? You will have no other gods before me. You will make no idols. All right? No idolatry to bow down and to worship and to serve those other gods that you should not have before me. Really, idolatry means you're breaking the, the two of the commandments in one. Package deal. It's double discipline in in its application. So it requires a complete obedience, a complete abandonment of all idolatry. And we see that here as well. If you will put away your detested things from my presence. He doesn't want to see him anymore. Why do you still have him around in those applications? All right. If you're not familiar with Deuteronomy 27, we'll grab this very quickly. This... uh, Context, as, or the uh, concept that we have spoken of here in Jeremiah 4:1, was previously addressed by Moses, and it's recorded here in Deuteronomy 27. You'll recall, in uh, this chapter, uh, we have curses and we have blessings. Then, when he put them under the law, he had the entire nation rehearse the cursings and the blessings, and they divided up with six of the tribes on one mountain and six of the tribes on the other mountain, right? Mount uh, Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And uh, Mount Ebal is the cursing mountain, okay? And in fact, we have that coming up as well in, uh, I don't remember if it's this chapter or chapter 5 or chapter 6, but Mount Ebal is coming up in the book of Jeremiah. So it's kind of neat that we get to see it here today in Deuteronomy 27. And in the uh, curses, as they're begun to be pronounced, notice verse 15 starts the recitation of the curses Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman. And he sets it up in secret. Well, it's not secret to God. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So curse number one, as the nation is rehearsing their cursings, is this issue of idolatry. It's item number one on God's list. Just like it's commandments number one and two. In the uh, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, many of us are familiar with Joshua 24, and we may in fact have uh, oh I don't know household knickknacks, artwork, doormats on your front porch, or something above your door, somewhere in your house. You have as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, that's a snippet with a larger context, and that larger context agrees with Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 1. If you're going to return, you're going to return to me and you're going to put away all of these idols, all of this idolatry. And so in Jeremiah 24, at the end of Joshua, I'm sorry, Joshua 24, at the end of Joshua's life here, verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Well, wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that 40 years later, they are still in possession and custody of idols that they've been dragging around since Egypt? That's exactly what the scriptures indicate. That not only did the Exodus generation tote them around, but the next generation, the wilderness generation, inherited them and kept them and kept toting them around. And now they've conquered the land, or much of it, and it's, we're at the end of the book of Joshua here, and he says, the time has come. We've got we to gotta get rid of these things. Why, do, why, why are we still holding on to them? If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's the context there. If you're going to be an idol worshiper, be an idol worshiper. But just be right out there with it and say, this is who I'm standing with. This is who I'm serving. Don't try to say one thing and have these other idols hidden over here. It doesn't work that way. That's spiritual adultery. That's like saying, well, this is my public wife, and then this is the one I'm sneaking around with over here. All right? That's why so often idolatry and adultery are interchanged in the metaphor through the Old Testament. We have the, uh, the aspects there. For the nation to return, as I get back to Jeremiah 4, one now, you will swear as the Lord lives. It requires a vow. It requires an oath. And this is something we're not as comfortable with in the New Testament as church-age believers. We're actually admonished to not take vows as such, but to let our yes be yes and our no, no. And we realize that vows are a terrible thing. They're a feature of the Old Testament. Israel was under them. They will be under them again to survive the tribulation and to survive to the second advent of Jesus Christ and to see the return of Christ and the establishment of the millennium, the kingdom of God upon this earth. He says, you will swear as the Lord lives. You realize what kind of a vow that is? This requires a vow upon the life of Yahweh a vow upon the life of Yahweh. That's a serious deal. Remember, who is Yahweh? He's the God who cannot die, right? He's the God who cannot lie and the God who cannot die. And now he is insisting upon a vow as to the truthfulness of something based upon his very life. These are serious matters. These are almost beyond capacity to describe in the English language. I'm doing my best, all right? But to understand the nature of a vow, things that we have so lost in our culture, we say, cross my heart and hope to die. Right? It's a ditty. It's a children's ditty on the playground. It's meaningless. And yet the basis for such vows is grounded in from the ancient of times. When I state... Uh, on a vow basis, calling a god to a witness, either the real god or a false god or somebody, calling Zeus to witness or whatever. Uh, I would, I'm going to swear by by Tautitus, alright? And I'm going to vow something. And if it's not true, I am inviting that deity to strike me down. Stick a needle in my eye. Well, who would do that? all right? But I'm saying, if this is not true, okay, Liar, liar, pants on fire. Who would do that? I'm saying, okay, all of these consequences, we have mocked them and ridiculed them. We've turned them into nursery rhymes and children's ditties on the playground. But the basis for them is grounded in in Scripture, in the reality of who God is. And if you swear by heaven or you swear by earth or you swear by His throne or you swear by God above, you are held to your vows. By the way, God himself uses this terminology. And so I have a list of scriptures here, and I don't want to get lost in this, but I don't want to ignore it either. I want to really impress it upon you when God himself says, as I live, saith the Lord. I mean, that's the God who cannot lie making a vow upon his own death. And the God who cannot die. How can the I am stop being? He is the I am. He has always lived. Okay? And so um, just write these down, look these up. Numbers 14, verses 21 and 28. We had it in our Isaiah series, Isaiah 49. That wasn't that long ago. Isaiah 49, 18. It's going to come back again. We're going to have this as I live language that Yahweh uses in uh, Jeremiah twenty-two, twenty-four, 24 and in Jeremiah 46, 18. As I live. And these are some of the promises he makes to restore Israel to their land to give the Jewish people a, a, a future and a hope. It's based upon as I live. And so Israel can, can bank on those kind of promises because they serve the living God. How could, uh, how could he not be faithful when he he's staked those promises on his very existence? As I live, saith the Lord. And then when you really want to get into it, you're going to spend a whole day in, in Ezekiel. You're going to go through all the uses of as I live 16 times in uh, in Ezekiel to uh, to give you the sense of that. All right. So I'm going to not read those verses and I'll assign that as homework unless by some miracle I still have time at the end of the hour. We'll come back to this, but I suspect we won't. All right. I'm going to assign those on a homework basis. Numbers 14, 21 and 28, Isaiah 49, 18, Jeremiah 22, 24, as well as Jeremiah 46, 18, and then 16 times in Ezekiel. If you want the list, email me. I'll send them to you. Otherwise, just uh, do a Logos search for As I Live. And you'll find the list of verses there that Yahweh is, uh, is speaking. Now, when this happens, look at the rest of verse 2. Then, alright, so you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in Him, and in Him They will glory. The fulfillment of every Gentile blessing through the seed of Abraham comes when the Jewish people are repentant. When the Jewish people are ushered into their kingdom. When Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of David in Jerusalem. It is millennial in its fulfillment. I can't stress that enough. The blessing upon the Gentiles. This is what will bless all the nations of the earth. Remember Genesis 12, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Restated in Genesis 22, verse 18, in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Restated in Psalm 72:17, in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is a component of the Abrahamic covenant, and we've studied that. We know that the covenant was made with Abraham and his seed, that the real fulfillment is in the seed of Abraham in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Same thing with the Davidic covenant. The covenant is made with David and with his seed. And the seed of David is Jesus Christ. That's why the New Testament opens with Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Alright? We have all of these promises. And it's then that the nations of the earth will be blessed. It is not today. It is not today. And this is extra credit. It's not on the slide. I won't charge you anymore for it. But you will, he- you will hear good men teach it. That the Gentile blessing promised in Genesis 12 is fulfilled in the church. Because in the church, Gentiles can get saved. Well, Gentiles have always been able to get saved. Before the church, Gentiles got saved. That's how Uriah the Hittite got saved and many others, all right? The church is not the fulfillment of Gentile blessings as per the Abrahamic covenant. In the church, we are neither Jew nor Gentile. We are a new creation, a new man in Christ, all right? The blessing of the Gentiles, and it says right here, then the nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. If I try to front load Gentile blessings as per the Abrahamic covenant to this day and age, dispensationally, I am off track. Gentile blessings as per Abrahamic and Davidic and new covenants come at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Of course, Gentiles are blessed today in the body of Christ, same as Jews are blessed today in the body of Christ. It has nothing to do with the Abrahamic or Davidic or new covenants. All right? Just take that if you have questions. uh, We have question and answer night, Wednesday night. But it is on that basis then that they will bless themselves in him. You notice it's reciprocal. You notice that they do it but receive the benefit of it. And in him they will glory. Millennial application. We'll have more on that when we get to more millennial portions of this book. Verse 3. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And we have warnings now that are coming in verses 3-18. through We start with this. And it's not anything that their ritual is going to save them by. It's not ritual circumcision of the flesh that's going to save them, or any external law-keeping of Sabbath observance, or anything else. They have to circumcise their heart, the foreskin of their heart. Rend your heart and not your garments is what we read in Isaiah, if you remember that. Here we have it here. This is Jeremiah's version of, uh, of that. Um... Let me put a slide up here and then see how much further I want to read. It's a big section here in verses 3 through 18. The warning for Judah is blunt. Confess and repent before you too are swept away. Repentance is very common, a message of that imminent coming kingdom. The prophet Isaiah preached repentance. Jeremiah preached repentance. Daniel, Ezekiel, all the prophets are preaching repentance. John the Baptist arises preaching the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what's his message? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so it's no question that we have repent in in the context of a kingdom uh, promise. Confess and repent before you too are swept away. The context for this judgment is the 6th century B.C. Babylonian captivity. We're talking Nebuchadnezzar. All right, we're talking imminent. Jeremiah will live to see it. Daniel is is carried off in 605. And he will be in Babylon when when the final fall comes. Uh, Ezekiel is carried away in 597. He also will be in Babylon when the final end comes. Jeremiah is left right there. Jeremiah is left in Jerusalem. And he is inside the city in 587 when the city falls. And he will watch it from within. So the context for this judgment is the 6th century B.C. Babylonian captivity. And you recall, as we, it's a little bit different because in Jeremiah... We, Jeremiah saw the northern kingdom swept away and he was able to encourage Hezekiah to stay faithful. And King Hezekiah stayed faithful. And the southern kingdom was spared. The southern kingdom was rescued from the hand of the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was not swept away. But now 150 years later, 100 plus years later, Jeremiah is on the scene and uh, Josiah now, the last of the good kings, is, uh, is not going to deliver his nation. Every king that comes after Josiah is, a, is, a, is worse than the one before. They're going to have bad king after bad king after bad king until they are ultimately also swept away. Now you can read through this. Um, blow a trumpet. Assemble yourselves into the fortified cities. Lift up a standard towards Zion. Seek refuge. Do not stand still. You know, Don't just you know stand there. Do something. I am bringing evil from the north and a great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. I mean, there's, there's bad things that are happening, but they've got to start with repentance. If their heart attitude is not adjusted properly, there is no military answer for the problems of what they're dealing with. I think the same thing in our nation. If our nation doesn't get its spiritual house in order, we don't have uh, an answer on election day. There's no political answer. There's no economic answer. There's no military answer that can save our nation. We need believers to be hungry for the word of God and to quit asking for their ears to be tickled. They need to start demanding that their pastors feed them and quit dilly-dallying with fun and games. The heart realities are what must be dealt with because they are the source of behavioral external deeds. Start with the heart. I don't know why they both popped up. Sorry about that. Just the top point for now. The heart realities are what must be dealt with. We already saw remove the foreskin of your heart so we know that When he says circumcise yourselves, he's talking with a metaphor about the spiritual reality. He's not talking about the the physical external thing that you do to a baby boy on the eighth day of his life. All right? That's a picture. But the reality is on a spiritual basis to circumcise your heart. Or as it says here in these other, uh, uh, other verses, verse 9, verse 14, verse 18, we see spiritual realities. Verse 9 says it shall come about that that day declares the Lord that the heart of the king and the heart of the princes will fail and the priests will be appalled and the prophets will be astounded. But it starts as a heart issue that's then reflected in uh, behavior and in external deeds. Verse 14, wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem. How do you wash your heart? It's a spiritual endeavor. We call it confession of sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But He says in verse 14, Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? A lot of the Jews got very good at having an external religious display. The Pharisees majored in it. There was their specialty. They could walk around as the holiest guys on the planet. But their heart was erect. And Jesus knew that and he pointed it out every single time. Verse 14 reflects that, verse 18 reflects that. Your ways and your deeds. The ways is the heart attitude. That's where your mind is, that's where your heart is, that's where you're thinking all the time. Your ways and your deeds have brought you these have brought these things to you. This is your evil. How bitter, how it has touched your heart. The repentance has to be genuine, it has to be true, it has to be from the heart, or it's it's a phony show, and God will see right through it. Secondly, and in the process of this, the point flew up there too early, but you see it. Verse ten. Jeremiah has an accusation to make here. Do you ever blame God for something? Do you ever, as human, right? I don't I don't understand what I'm dealing with, I don't like it. So obviously, God, um, God, that's that's wrong. You've done something wrong, and stop it, stop it now. <laughs> All right, that's enough, God. I put up with that long enough. We just, we, 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 humanly speaking, and then we have to retract and repent and adjust our thinking to God's attitude, of course. But he thinks that God is lying. The God who cannot lie is putting a condition out there, saying repent. And Jeremiah says, God, you know these guys aren't going to repent. <laughs> Jeremiah says, God, are you kidding me? These guys aren't going to repent. And Jeremiah may only be a 10-year-old at this point, but he knows well enough that this nation will not repent. So he accuses the Lord of making a disingenuous offer in His promise of peace. Verse 10 10 says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem. Alright? Don't call God a liar. But this is what he does. Surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, you shall have peace, whereas a sword touches the throat. He doesn't believe what he's commanded to preach. He doesn't think it's going to happen. How can you tell them to repent? They're not going to repent. You've utterly deceived this people. And it's interesting, and you wonder sometimes. I think this is the essence of God's sovereignty and man's volition. And how it's harmonized in God's plan. Even if we can't always harmonize it ourselves, humanly speaking. Does it make it less of an offer? When John the Baptist said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was he lying? Now God knew they were going to reject the kingdom. God knew they were going to crucify the Christ. So why did he instruct John the Baptist to say the kingdom of heaven was at hand? Why did he instruct Jesus to preach the kingdom? Jesus and his disciples were preaching the kingdom. They were baptizing, same as John was baptizing, until a particular point came when the nation rejected him, and then Jesus stopped preaching the kingdom at hand, and he started preparing his disciples for the cross. In a very hinged moment, he started to speak in parables of the coming kingdom. Very hinged moment in the life of Christ. Well, now God foreknew all of that, so does God's foreknowledge of the cross... And the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. I mean, we look at all these things with hindsight. And and I'm thankful we can. But ignore all your hindsight for now. Just pretend you don't know any of that. And say, was that a real offer or not? Was it a genuine offer of the kingdom? Or was God a liar? Was he utterly deceiving the people when he sent John the Baptist in there to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? And I think we look at this verse and we look at the whole realm of Scripture and we realize, no, it was a genuine offer. And had they accepted it, the kingdom could have been brought in in that first century. See, God's sovereignty has a handle on all of human negative volition and even better, angelic negative volition. Because the angelic rebellion preceded the human rebellion. And we're going to see that today as well. So I think this is the essence of God's sovereignty and man's volition harmonized in the glorious plan of God. I think it's also the essence of how we evangelize. Don't you dare base your evangelism upon who you're convinced uh, will will accept the gospel or who you're convinced (coughs) will never accept the gospel. Because we don't know. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, that'll show up well in the MP3. All right. Have you ever looked at somebody and said, oh, they'll never believe the gospel. I'm not going to bother preaching it to them. Horrible. <coughs> Pray hard. <coughs> All right. So Jeremiah accuses the Lord of making a disingenuous offer. And that's the uh, the issue there in verse 10. All right. <coughs> 19 to 22. My soul, my soul, I'm in anguish, oh my heart. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, I'm going to illustrate. My soul, my soul. Jeremiah is not enjoying this chapter. He's having a very tough time delivering this chapter. He actually pens a lamentation in full awareness that Judah is too foolish and too stupid to repent any time in his lifetime. Jeremiah, even at the age of 8 or 10 or 12, however young we decide he is, even at that age, he knows he's not going to live long enough for these idiots to repent and to trust in the Lord. And I'm not just calling them names, he's calling them names. And the Holy Spirit put it in our Bibles, as we see here. My people are stupid, as it says in verse 22. All right? But my heart is pounding in me. I'm back up to verse 19. I cannot be silent. You know, he would like to not preach this. <coughs> but he cannot not preach this. Because you have heard, O oh my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Disaster on disaster is proclaimed, for the whole land is devastated, That phrase is key. The whole land is devastated. Suddenly my tents are devastated. My curtains in an instant. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? God is sending judgment, but He also has a finite boundary for how long that judgment is going to last. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil. But to do good, they do not know. They're experts at sin, but they're morons at obeying the Word of God. Okay, and that's backwards. We should be experts at the Word of God and blithering morons when it comes to the ter- uh, issues of sin and, and uh, carnality and, and all of that. Now here's a fun one. I, this, is, this is just a, a fun one to preach. And if he gives me a voice, I'll get through it. His soul is in anguish and he cannot keep silent. This will come back again in chapter 20 when he actually tries to not give a message. He uh, lasts a little bit longer in chapter 20 than he did in chapter 4. In chapter 20, he actually kind of held it in for a little bit. And uh, by holding it in for a little bit, he made it worse. And it actually started to burn inside of him. And uh, the issues, uh, verse 9, chapter 20 and verse 9. If I say I will not remember him or speak any more his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire. Shut up in my bones, and I am very weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. It reaches a point that he either has to preach that message out there, or who knows if it might, you know, explode. <laughs> What's the damage to a prophet when he just keeps a bottle up too long? Kind of a thing. So his soul is in anguish, and he cannot keep silent. And this characterization of uh, being stupid at good stuff and geniuses at bad stuff is uh, is kind of interesting. It actually matches Micah's description in Micah seven three. Micah was earlier than Jeremiah. Micah was actually a uh, a contemporary of uh, Isaiah, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. So in Micah seven three, here's how he describes it. Um, Micah, again, is moaning here. He says, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land. You look around you think, there aren't any believers with norms and standards even left in this country anymore. Who else has norms and standards outside of Austin Bible Church? Anybody? I mean, goodness. Where are my kids going to find spouses? There's no, there's no believers left on the planet. There are no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. They're ambidextrous sinners, all right? Equally proficient, left-handed and right-handed. Concerning sin, both uh, evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. Hey, let's make a deal. And uh, they get good at that. So Jeremiah's characterization of Judah matches Micah's. And you'll notice, though, it is diametrically opposed to what Jesus said. Jesus said, Be shrewd as serpents, yet innocent as doves. We want to have a shrewdness when we learn the Word of God. Matthew chapter 10, and verse 16. We do want to have a, a certain tactical wisdom as it applies to this fallen world we operate in. We don't want to be Uh, so blithering naïve that we're we're victimized and in trouble in in realms of of, of sin and the sinners that are out there. We want to be aware of it, but at the same time, we want to be innocent of all of it. And that's how Jesus commands us to be shrewd as serpents, yet harmless as doves. Completely upside down from uh, how Jeremiah sees things here, where he says, they are shrewd to do evil, but to do good, they do not know. They have it exactly upside down from what Jesus would uh, admonish us to in, uh, in that uh, respect. All right. So to do good, they do not know. Now, we come to this hinge in verse 23. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void, The Hebrew here is the Tohu Wabohu that we have studied many times in Genesis 1-2. And in fact, there's only two places in the Bible that have the Tohu Wabohu construction that we have in Genesis 1-2, and that would be there and here, all right? Genesis 1-2 and Jeremiah 4 and verse 23. But I want you to notice that in the context here, we have different expressions, and we have clues in the text that tell us, wait a minute, there's something different in this paragraph compared to the paragraph before and the paragraph after. And there's a reason for that. And and it's an expression we study in our hermeneutics classes when we study uh, aspects such as prophetic shift, when we're talking about human beings one minute, and then we're talking about angels the next minute. How did we get there? All right. And Isaiah 14 was a good example of that, or Ezekiel 28 when we went from the earthly king to Satan. And we saw clues in the text that put us into a shift of context. Same thing that happens here. 23 through 26 is a bubble in the midst of what preceded it and what comes after it. And the language demands that. The language demands that we handle it somewhat differently. Remember I mentioned in uh, the reference to the whole land in verse 20? That's significant because it's not found in this bubble uh, similar expressions are, but not that whole land. We get back to the whole land again in verse 27. You'll notice, thus says the Lord, the whole land will be a desolation. Yet I will not execute a complete destruction. And so the languages, the the, the clues that we have in the text say, I've got a marker here in in verse 20. And this is this expression, the whole land is devastated. And then that marker comes back in verse 27. The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not execute a complete destruction. All right. And so we've got a a bridge there from the earlier section to the later section. But what is this bubble in the middle? In in the the text, what what is this bubble? What is this prophetic shift in the middle of the vision? And you'll notice it's introduced with I looked. And we realize that in addition to everything else Jeremiah was seeing, in addition to all of his anguish and not wanting to warn Judah about the Babylonian destruction, he looks and he's given a vision here that about blows his mind because he's seeing things before Adam in these verses. He says, I looked upon the earth. Now that's, that's a different expression than what we have with the whole land and the whole land. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. Alright, now there was a time in the past when it was like this, and this was before God said, let there be light, and there was light. Alright? And then the process of those six days of Genesis in the recovery of the earth for Adamic uh, humanity. But here we have this description, and by the way, it's coming back again. Part of the judgments in the in the tribulation is the darkening of the sun, moon, and stars. the the darkening of the heavens and the uh, the the great terror that it inspires in angels and humans alike. That uh, the King of Glory is on his way, and he's going to have that victory at Armageddon. So I looked on the earth, and behold, it was tohu abohu, formless and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking. And all the hills moved to and fro. Now this is not, this is not a 6th century B.C. context. The context for this judgment is the pre-Adamic destruction of the angelic earth. This is global. How many times has God judged the earth globally? Alright, I mean Noah's flood is the obvious one. But was there darkness associated with Noah's flood? The quaking of the mountains? I mean we have some of that, some... Earthquake and volcano activity in the flood. Uh, but this is this is not Noah's flood. Okay? And it, it impacts the whole earth, but it's not a flood. It is the destruction of the earth. It is the pulling down of the cities, angelic cities. It is creating the Tohu Wabohu circumstances that we read about in, Je- in Genesis 1 2. Remember Genesis 1 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? Great. And the earth was formless and void. The earth was tohu wabohu. Wow. How did that happen? (laughs) What happened from verse 1 to verse 2? Well, we got Jeremiah 4, we got Isaiah 45, we got Job 38. We have other passages of the scriptures that give us those answers. Not every answer is in Genesis. All right. I'm going to start a competing organization. I'm going to call it Questions in Genesis. (laughs) Okay. Answers from places outside of Genesis. Genesis. Because Genesis doesn't answer everything, and that's easy enough to do. In fact, uh, you know we uh, we have so many questions. We, we we read Genesis one, we say, okay, I got to handle on that. We read Genesis two, say, okay, I got to handle on that. And then I read Genesis three, and this serpent shows up, and he's a fallen creature, he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's an evil being. Well, I didn't see any of that happening in chapter one or chapter two. When did that happen? Okay? That's questions in Genesis. Answers elsewhere. Alright? They, they sin. The woman sins. The man sins. Uh, they're naked. Fig leaves. Animal skins. The chapter ends. And what happens? They're driven out of the garden. What happens? He puts a cherub at the gate of the garden. And more questions in Genesis. What's a What's a cherub? The very first time you ever read the word cherub in the Bible is right there, and you say, what's a cherub? Where did that come from? What's a sword? Where did that come from? You go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, you're reading day by day by day by day, you don't find any cherubs. You say, wait a minute, not every answer is in Genesis. There's some questions in Genesis. What's a cherub, and why is he fallen? And why is this other cherub not fallen? Why is that serpent fallen? And where's the conflict coming from? And how does this all come together? Those answers aren't in Genesis. Okay? Don't get me wrong. I like the group. I'm very, I'm, I'm positive to that group answers. I, I like what they do. But I'm troubled by what they don't do. And, and some of the limitations of why they don't do it, um, I think leads to uh, why they don't understand us. Answers in Genesis, by the way, hates the gap concept between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Just so you know. Anyway, this is the context for what we're dealing with here. Now, there's only two Old Testament uh, places that use this phrase, tohu wabohu. Obviously, I've said already, it's Genesis 1, 2, and Jeremiah 4. In, in Genesis, it doesn't tell you how it got that way. It just says it was. Okay, And a lot of Hebrew scholars argue back and forth between uh, became and was. And how do you translate the, the wahaya there and the, the earth became formless and void or the earth was formless and void. I don't care. You can put it in English however you want to put it in English, either as became or was. It's irrelevant to me. It does not affect the distinctions to be found between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 because the answers aren't in Genesis. They're in Jeremiah 4, and they're in Isaiah 45, and they're in Job 38, and they're in Psalm 106. And it's just off the top of my head. There's a couple other places as well. What made it formless and void? Was it made that way? Was it created that way? In the beginning God created the heavens and a formless and void earth and then he sorted out his mess after that why couldn't he just make it great to start with in fact the bible says he made it great to start with all right it was not formed it was not made formless it was not made tohu it says in Isaiah 45:17 but it became that way why well we're told why it's the rebellion it's judgment and uh, the mountains are quaking, and all the hills move to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. Now, unlike Noah's flood, where, we're, where we have birds, and we have fish, and we have animals, and we have other things, uh, we're not talking about the flood judgment. We're not talking about humans and animals, per se. We're talking about the celestial and the terrestrial Spirit beings we commonly refer to as angels. Alright, and you might recall this when we taught our angelology. When angels were created, not every angel was a celestial being. Some of them were terrestrial beings. In other words, they occupied this angelic earth. Others were celestial. Satan didn't like where his throne was. He wanted to raise his throne above the stars of God. He was not happy being the, the, the most glorious created being because he was still a terrestrial angel. The guardian cherub placed upon the mountain. He wanted to raise his throne above the stars of God. He wanted to be elevated above the celestial beings. In any event, let's look at this fourfold looking. Angels and and, uh, men and birds, by the way. That's not... uh, they're, They're classifications of angels. The terrestrial angels called men the celestial angels called birds. The birds of the heavens had fled. And this uh, is why the parable uses birds for snatching away the seed on the roadside. Satan is represented in that. It's an angelic reference to birds. I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness and all its cities were pulled down before the Lord and before his fierce anger. I call this a fourfold looking because what do you have in verse 23? I looked. Verse 24, I looked. Verse 25, I looked. Verse 26, I looked. (laughs) You see that? And here is the prophet Jeremiah. He's looking, he's looking, he's looking, he's looking, and he's seeing this vision of, of unbelievable scope. Yahweh's anger. Executing a complete global destruction. And why would he be given a vision like that at a time like this? because of a time like this it gets to be a great encouragement to know that nebuchadnezzar's destruction is partial it's not global it's not eternal it's a destruction but not a total destruction likewise antichrist in the great tribulation desolations are determined oh my goodness antichrist is going to wreak amazing desolations on this earth daniel is going to speak of desolations are determined there is a, and it will be global in its scope, but it will not be complete. Jeremiah can be assured that all the wrath God will ever pour upon the Jews. It will be a day unlike any day in human history, but it will still fall short of the tohu wabohu wrath that God threw down upon the angels in the end of, of Satan's rebellion. All right? So Jeremiah saw Yahweh's anger execute a complete global destruction, something that he will never do again until he creates the new heavens and the new earth. And we know that. We know from 2 Peter chapter 3 according to his promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And when he gets ready to destroy this earth he does so and he does so through fire and you can read about that as well. Uh, 2 Peter 3 7. You should be familiar with all of these and how many times have you heard, according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? A little bit prior to that context, though, verse 7. By His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. There is a judgment day coming. It will be global. It will actually be universal. Heavens and earth. All right? All right. In uh, the angelic destruction, it was just the earth that was tohu wabohu. Alright? But here, everything is consumed. Verse 10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Every molecule of matter in this universe will be converted to heat, converted to energy. And the earth and its works will be burned up. No more matter anywhere in the universe. And the issues there, so this ought to be a comfort for Jeremiah, saying, "You got some tough messages to preach coming up, but guess what It, is, it will not be the total wrath of the Tohu wabohu such as the angels themselves experienced again, if you want more on this, you can uh, take a look at Isaiah fourteen, take a look at ezekiel twenty eight I can grab a couple of these briefly. Birds and men represent the winged and non-winged. What we called the celestial and the terrestrial uh, spirit beings, the celestial and the terrestrial angel. Right? Not every angel was a winged angel uh, in their in their existence prior to uh, um, Adam, prior to humanity. And this is huge. Okay. By the way, if you've never studied the big picture of of the angelic conflict or why uh, humanity was even created or how lower creatures like humans can resolve the issues of the greater creatures the angels when they rebelled i encourage you that's a powerful study that is something that's that's, that's huge all right the knowledge of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that tells you something that tells you evil precedes man every human i talk to that's all grumbly about evil in the world <laughs> say well guess what there's a solution to that but it, we're not the ones that's going to solve it god's got a solution to that let me tell you what jesus did on the cross let me tell you what's coming up. You know, I, I I don't Satan likes to use the problem of evil as if it can thwart uh, the gospel. I don't mind the problem of evil at all. I'll tell you about victory over evil. But evil is older than man. So if you think there's a human solution to evil, you know, if you if you're if you're whatever, okay, and, and politicians and both parties promise all these answers. But if, if they're promising you a human solution to evil they're off track because evil is older than humanity. The rebellion of Satan is what introduced evil into the cosmos. This cosmos has been dealing with evil longer than Adam and Eve have been around and, and us. Okay. Uh, if you want more on this, let me just clue you in here. Isaiah 14. We don't often pay attention to verses 16 through 21 because we're so busy paying attention to verses 12 and following. But in Isaiah fourteen, it's the continuation of, of Satan's five eye wills. And uh his name here of Lucifer, or his name here of and now he's a evening sitcom, not a sitcom, but there's a there's a show, a, a drama now on TV in prime time called Lucifer. As if uh he's somebody to celebrate, okay? How you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, that's Latin. Uh Hillel ben Shachar, that's Hebrew. I prefer that. Um Star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who weakened the nations. All right. Well, is it we're talking in the realm of humanity here? Or what are we talking about? Because angels preceded men. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He didn't like being a, celest- a terrestrial angel. He wanted to be a celestial angel. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. Oh, he lusted after a seat, but it wasn't his. To which of the angels did God say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? None of the angels were entitled to that throne, but Jesus Christ himself in victory was entitled to that throne. I will make myself, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Here's the rebellion of Satan. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Read through these verses and consider a pre-Adamic context on the angelic earth. Who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness? That's not the full Tohu Wabohu, but it's half of it. Who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities? who did not allow his prisoners to go home. The ugliness of war when you execute your POWs before they can be rescued by the uh, victorious forces. You know, there would have been more survivors of the Bataan Death March had the Japanese not executed as many POWs as they could before the American forces were able to rescue them. Satan did not allow his prisoners to go home. Remember, angels could die. They They were mortal before they were immortal We think of angels as they are today. They weren't always like that. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. Anyway, there's more there uh, going all the way down through. uh, But notice, verse 20, 21. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Satan was involved trying to fill the face of the world with cities. Why was it when Cain left the presence of, of uh, Adam and Eve? He went out and he built a city. All right? Babel was another reflection of that. And the millennium will, or the tribulation. Satan will be doing more city building aspects there. Ezekiel 28. these are the great chapters that detail the pre-adamic fall of Satan. Ezekiel 28, verses 18 and 19. And maybe this is a newsflash. Maybe you thought Adam and Eve was the beginning and that there was nothing before humans. Well, then how did that serpent become a fallen being by chapter 3? Now, there's already evil in the world because there's a tree with a fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. What? Evil pre existed man. Ezekiel 28, again, is pre-Adamic. It's before the fall of Satan. It describes how he fell and the pride that prompted it. And in verses 18 and 19, it says, By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Satan was the first moneylender in the temple. So when Jesus saw it played out again in the human realm, he went berserk. He starts flipping over tables and whipping them with a scourge and, and all that. And he, you wonder, why did the Jesus go so berserk on those occasions? had seen it before. He's, he realized that the satanic evil that motivates all of this. You profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you. Remember how fire could be inside the prophets? I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. And I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. He's no longer the glorious gem-encrusted dragon that he used to be. Now he's the scaly, ugly dragon of darkness that has to disguise himself as an angel of light because that internal fire has just consumed him. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. All right, there's issues there with Satan's fall. So we want to expand our thinking and dwell in in Jeremiah 4 in a context with uh, Genesis 1, in a context with Isaiah 14, With Ezekiel 28, with Jeremiah 38, with other such passages that precede Adam in the Bible. Which takes us then to, that's backwards, uh, verses 27 through 31. Verses 27 through 31, and we can conclude the chapter in three minutes. Verses 27 through 31. Jeremiah chapter 4. And notice, another prophetic shift, and now we're back. And are we looking at, um, are we back to looking at Nebuchadnezzar? Are we back to looking at 6th century B.C.? Or have we now progressed to our eschatology? Have we now progressed, and we have, to the tribulation and a judgment that is now coming? And so a thus saith the Lord message, where Yahweh is now able to put that tohu wabohu vision into a context. And he puts it into a context with the coming tribulation. Now we're going to go past the church. Now we're going to go into what is future for us 2016 AD uh, kind of people. All right? Jeremiah 4, verses 27 through 31. So we've gone from Jeremiah's day to the angelic earth before Adam. And now when we come back to humanity, it's, uh, the context is now eschatological. It's end times. For thus saith the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not execute a complete destruction. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. Because I have spoken, I have purposed, I will not change my mind, nor will I turn from it. That God in in Armageddon, God is not just fixing Israel's issues. He is dealing with all humanity and the angels as well. He is bringing Satan's dominion down. He is binding Satan in the abyss with a heavy chain. So much more happens in Armageddon than just rescuing the Jews from a bunch of anti-Semites. Okay? uh, For this, the earth shall mourn. Uh, Verse 29 and, and so forth. Uh, The sound of the horsemen and bowmen, every city flees. They go into the thickets, climb among the rocks. Every city is forsaken. No man dwells in them. They crawl into holes in the ground. They want the mountains to hide them. And you, O desolate one, what will you do? I believe this is a reference to Satan himself and not, uh, not Israel. This gets handled in different ways. First of all, desolations are determined. They are determined. Study Daniel sometime. The whole ministry of Antichrist is about these desolations. Desolations are determined, but not a complete destruction. Daniel spoke of it. Jesus spoke of it. Jesus quoted Daniel and said it hadn't happened yet when Jesus was speaking in 33 AD, but not a complete destruction. The desolate one is Satan. Satan's being rebuked here via Antichrist and the harlot. The woman in labor is Israel birthing the kingdom. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, the anguish as of one giving birth to her first child. So the desolate one is coming into judgment, and and this woman's about to have a baby. We've talked about that in our Isaiah series. The birth is the birth of the kingdom. Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 9. And of course, this metaphor becomes even more beautiful when you place it in tandem with the seed of the woman promise of Genesis 3.15. And you realize that the seed of the woman is the one that has the victory. It's Jesus Christ that has the victory. Because there is a seed of the woman Savior, there's going to be a seed of the woman kingdom. You ever think about that? This woman is in travail. Tribulation is her travail. Tribulation is her labor pains. But And when she gives birth to a baby, it's the kingdom. All right? But that's only possible. That woman can only have that baby because another woman had a baby, the seed of the woman. That is the birth of our Savior and His faithfulness to accomplish the first Advent work. Oh, it's a powerful picture. It's criminal to give that in two minutes because there is so much beauty in that. How the seed of the woman Savior brings in the seed of the woman kingdom through this travail. Well, A lot to pray over, a lot to think about. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this study. I thank you for prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And Man, Father, they they plunged into the depths of all things, historical, human, prehistorical, angelic, all kinds of things. And Father, we realize that what we grasp in the human realm, these are merely the fringes of your ways. I thank you for the blessings that we have to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you for a flock that wants to sink their teeth into meat and they don't simply want to just drink the pablum and the milk of, of baby food. I pray, Father, that you will make these studies very real to each one of us, that we will know our place in the angelic conflict, that we will understand our role in the bride of Christ, that we will operate appropriately in human and in angelic applications because we do struggle, Father. Our conflict is not against flesh and blood. It is against the rulers and the authorities, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And I pray, Father, that you will equip us, Austin Bible Church and anyone else that's listening to these messages, Father, that you would equip us to be armored up and fully engaged in in what you expect of us in this angelic conflict. And I do thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, how it keeps us stable. Father, I just, I I grieve. I'm like Jeremiah. I I weep when I think of, of believers who should know better. And they're looking to a political savior or they're looking to earthly answers. The answer is not at the battle at the ballot box. It's with you, Father, in the spiritual needs of this nation. So I pray that believers will wake up and get serious. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.